Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as you can tell, I am not Brad. Uh, uh, in so many ways, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, Brad and Allison are actually speaking at TVR and have been this weekend at the couples retreat. Um, and actually, uh, five or six of our families went over to the mountains uh, to be a part of that couples retreat. And so pray for them. Uh, pray for uh, their, their marriages, for their, all of our marriages. Um, but uh, pray for their, their safety in traveling back as well. Um, but in the meantime, they, they called up QB2. And so um, I am here. And as you know, we've been going through... Uh, a new series called the 29th chapter. And before the summer started, uh, we, we went through the book of Acts. Uh, and, and there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And what we saw was how the Holy Spirit moved through the church, through the apostles, uh, and, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ spread uh, throughout uh, the ancient Near East, through, throughout Asia Minor, uh, and 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 into Europe and and how the church grew in number and and in strength. And at the end of Acts, in in, in chapter twenty eight, uh, we see Paul entering Rome and starting to preach, just like he had done in every other city that he had uh, visited, every other city where he was a missionary. And the book just ends. Uh, and if you're reading it and, and understanding that this is a narrative, this is a story that, that, that we ought to engage in and, and read as such, you say, well, that was pretty anticlimactic. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the story isn't over. It's not over. And so here we find ourselves continuing the work of the apostles, uh, continuing the work of the church. We are the church. Uh, we are the same church that was established uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on, on Pentecost, uh, and that has spread ever since. We find ourselves now in, in the 29th chapter, uh, and, and we are here in, 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 in waiting for, for the Lord to return, but until then, we're doing the work of the church. We are continuing the work of Peter and Paul and Barnabas and those who came before us. And so we've been looking at what that means, what it means to be a part of the story of God, to fit into the story of God. And Brad talked about the redemptive story that flows throughout all the pages of Scripture. Uh, it begins in creation, and then we see the fall of man, and then it, it, it climaxes in redemption, and we eagerly await the full restoration. And, and we fit into this story of what God is doing on the earth. And Brad has come to us for two weeks from the text, from Scripture, and, and, and has reminded us that we are a part of this story. We are a part of what God is doing in the world. And as we continue on in these next couple months, what we are going to see is that as a church and as believers, you are uniquely gifted and wired to, to interact in, to participate in God making things new. That God is redeeming the earth, that he is bringing his kingdom in its fullness, and that he is using the church to do it. And each of you being filled with the Spirit are uniquely equipped so that the mission of the church cannot happen unless all of the members of the church are fully engaged. 
and using all that God has given them and, and, uh, for, for the sake of, of God's glory and the good of the nations. And we're going to be going through Scripture doing it. And so at this point, when we were talking about how this series would look, how we would lay down the logical progression, how we would come to the point where uh, we can be calling you pretty um, sternly, uh, pretty urgently into action, into mission, into being the church, uh, it seemed like a good point to talk about authority. When I say that word, you can feel it. Authority. Kids don't like it. That's for sure. Here's the problem. Adults don't like it either. We probably dislike it more. We live in a democracy. Authority lies with the people, right? I want to give you a, a little history of philosophy because that's what I studied, and so I like every once in a while to get it in. Um, in the early 17th century, around 1630, there was a French philosopher named Rene Descartes. And some of you may have heard of Rene Descartes. Um, but he wrote a book, uh, a discourse on first meditations. And, and here was his basic premise. I want to see where the starting point of certainty is. And so he began this, this process of doubting, of just reckless doubting. Anything that I can possibly doubt, Descartes said, I will throw out. And as he began to do this, he, he would say uh, that what, what I can doubt is that there are other people. Uh, because it could very well just be a figment of my imagination. All of you could be a figment of my imagination. It's feasible. It's, it's possible that you don't exist and that all of this is some sort of uh, subconscious reality uh, that, that does not exist. And so he got to the point where he doubted. He said, let's throw out the notion that other people exist. Let's throw out science as we understand it. Let's throw out God because we can reasonably doubt that God exists. And eventually what he came to the, what he came to uh, the conclusion of when he, we got to the bottom of it, what he said is that the only thing that I cannot doubt is that I'm doubting. I can't doubt that. And so the, the, bottom, the, the bottom reality of all life, the, the, the truth underneath all truth is cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And then starting with that, he restructured all of life. Now, Rene Descartes was was a, uh, he was a he was a believer. At the end of the day, he actually ended up with with the reality, with the realization, and, and with the belief that we can be certain that there's a God, that God's word is true, and that we ought to live by His word. Uh, but what he did not realize was that he changed the scope of of. Western civilization, the scope of, of knowledge and understanding, until Rene Descartes, uh, the basic principle of the world was God spoke, and therefore I am. And then he said, I think, therefore I am. And, and do you see what happened? He changed the authority for, for certainty. And, and many of us like 
like Cartesian models and principles of understanding. We like modernism. We like looking at, at propositional truth. And when it stacks up in our favor, slamming it against our opponents. But a lot of that is built up in this idea that the, the starting point for all knowledge and truth is the self. And so what happens throughout, all, throughout history now is that people begin to look at, at all of these models and these structures and they begin to say things like Wittgenstein does, that all truth is communal because we don't, we don't come up with these things on our own. We are nurtured into things. We live in community. We have language games and, and rules by which we abide. Certain things make sense in my community that don't make sense in other communities. And, and if you've been to another country, especially a non-Western country, you know how true that is. If you grew up in the North, and you live in, in the South, you know how true that is, that there are certain language games and certain things you do here that, you know, what's a barbecue? That's probably the easiest example. Uh, the truth is, barbecues, hamburgers, and hot dogs on a grill. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, and there you go. Immediately what he said, no, 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 no. That's your culture. Your culture has determined that as truth. And so in, in somewhere, you know, Wittgenstein is saying, see, I told you, barbecue, the perfect example. Which barbecue is best? Just another example, you know. And so <clears throat> here we find ourselves uh, in, 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 in a new understanding, a postmodern understanding. And, and a lot of people shake at the word postmodern as if it were anything but a continuation of modernism. It's not the pendulum swing. It's the, it's the logical conclusion. If I am the center of, uh, of certainty and of truth, then so are you. And so now we live in a, in a place, in an era where there is no such thing as certainty or, or absolute truth or authority. And so when you say the word authority, people get uncomfortable. The problem is, hopefully, self-evident. We as a church are called to proclaim gospel, good news. We're called to proclaim truth. And either people will hear us and say, that is your truth, and you are stupid for believing it, or that is your truth, and you are arrogant for cramming it down our throats. And as Christians... We have been pretty terrible in arguing against that and in understanding the authority that we have and where it comes from, how we receive it, and what we do with it. And so, so we're going to talk a little bit about biblical authority. And, and before we go any further, I have to admit that it's not going to sound or, or, or seem probably like what you're anticipating. This is not going to be an apologetic on the inerrancy of Scripture. And you'll see where we're going. Uh, turn, turn with me to Isaiah 66. We're just going to read two verses. We're going to sit in these two verses 
for the rest of the time that we have. That's verses 1 and 2. And so if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, you are good. You are the starting point. You are the ending point. And everything in between. So as we come to your word, move us by your spirit towards you. I love you. We praise, praise you for your work on the cross and your work in your son, Jesus Christ. His name, amen. You can be seated. As we go through this text, we're talking about authority, and very specifically biblical authority. Um, and, and we're going to look at two main points with a bridge. And we've, I think I've done this before, but it's two main points with a bridge. And we're going to look at the concept of divine authority, of the sovereignty of God. And then we're going to end up with biblical authority which is our response to the sovereignty of God. And in the middle, we'll we'll have a little caveat about the self-sufficiency of God. And hopefully at the end of this, we will see why authority doesn't lie with the self, but rather with God. And that the the only place that we see God speaking authoritatively is in his word. Let's look at the first couple verses. We're going to skip half of, uh, half of verse 1, and then part of, and we'll read the first part of verse 2. And so uh, Isaiah says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And then you move to verse 2 and it says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Uh, here is the ultimate reality. God is authoritative. God is our highest authority. And here's why. Because he made everything. And he upholds everything. And because he says so. We're talking about the storyline of Scripture, and so what better way to go through it? What better way to understand it than through this? If you were to turn to, and maybe you ought to, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning. The Bible says this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that it was good. And in this, we get, the, we get the beginning thesis of all Scripture, that there is a God that he created and that he speaks. This is something that moves throughout all Scripture. We're going to come back to something in that in a little bit, but, but we have to know that. And, and then, what happens throughout the rest of Genesis 1? God speaks, and things are created. Genesis 1, for those of you who, who, who don't know, um, it's, a, it's a poem. Uh, it's, it, it's more appropriately a song. Genesis 1 is a song, and it has verses, and it has choruses. And if you read it, you can feel it. You can feel the way it flows. Uh, this is why I love C.S. Lewis, why I love The Magician's Nephew. Uh, because in The Magician's Nephew, the, the two main characters, uh, Polly and, and Didgery, they, they enter into to Narnia uh, as it's being created. And what they see is Aslan, the lion, singing. And as he sings and as his breath flows forth, Narnia is created. And I think C.S. Lewis understood what's going on here in Genesis 1. It's a song. It's a poem. And, and each verse starts, and God said. And then we go into the refrain. It was evening. It was morning. It was good. And so just like you would read a poem differently from a narrative or from uh, a textbook, we ought to read Genesis 1 a little bit differently. And so when we look at the language that God uses, we ought to look at things like repetition. What, what words, what phrases are repeated in Genesis? In Genesis 1. What are some? Don't usually make this interactive. Let's do it. Let there be. It was good. And God said. And so really that phrase is, and God said, let there be right? And it was. What do these repeated phrases tell us? God speaks and it happens. Genesis 1 is a poem and what it is singing is the glories of a God who creates, who builds his own kingdom. He is king. His word is law. When he speaks, it happens. This is the first truth that we see in Scripture. And from then on, it doesn't change. The number one way that God is referred to is Lord or King. Not Father, not Friend. Not even Love, although he is all of those things. It's Lord. The Bible is a, a covenant book. And, and it's a covenant between a king and his people. And God is that king. He is our highest authority. As we move throughout the Psalms, especially, what do we see? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord reigns. Sing his praises. The Lord is exalted above all the earth. This is the common theme. And so for us as Christians, before we can begin to talk about biblical authority, we have to talk about the authority of God himself. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is authoritative? That what God says is true? We'll talk more about how you prove you believe that later. But here's the reality that God created everything. And that the very act of creation establishes God as king over all of us. And we must submit to his lordship. He is our authority. And that's how Isaiah starts this last chapter in his prophecy. Look, a lot of stuff has been prophesied. A lot of stuff has been said in the previous 65 chapters. But here we come to the close. And there's this shift. The Lord starts kind of one last summarizing statement. And he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I am Lord above all lords. And this is not a unique thing. He's about to tell us to do something. And God sort of works like this. He reminds us us of his authority, and then he commands us to live accordingly. Think about Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. When we hear the, the words Great Commission, this is what we think. Go, therefore, make, all, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That's what we think of when we hear the Great Commission. But Jesus' words actually start a verse before that. There's something we cut out that's huge. This is what Jesus says when he gathers the disciples together for the last time. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't start with the command. He reminds us of his authority over all things, good and evil. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. God is the supreme authority. And then we move on. Right, in the, right at the end of verse 1. And we're, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to stop here and talk a little bit about apologetics here. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of apologetics, but, but brothers and sisters, we, we, we've got to pause for a second and think about it. Listen to what God says. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All right, now there's a basic truth here that's going on. It's not about apologetics, and, and we need to be honest about that. What God is saying here is that um, there's nothing you have that I don't. There's no want in me that you can fill. Uh, a verse that we misquote a lot is uh, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, we say that if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then you don't need to worry about money because he's got you. And and that's true, but that's not what the point is. Uh, The point in context is that God's saying, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. What sacrifice could you possibly give me that would make me any richer? What do you have to add to the goodness and the perfection of God? And right away, kind of two things happen. Uh, A gospel of works is shattered. There's not enough works you can do to please God. You have nothing to offer God in exchange for eternal salvation. Everything must be grace. 
It must be a gift. And the second thing that we see, uh, that we come across, is the fact that God, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. But he does not need us. How does the Bible start? We were just there. Does it start? Think about the, the greatest thing that could possibly exist. A perfect thing. By definition, if it's perfect, it has to exist. Therefore, God exists. Right? Like Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. Does it start there? Does it start with a clever apologetic on why we ought to believe that there is a God? No. The Bible just starts. There's a God. It assumes it, and it goes on that premise. In the beginning, God created. Deal with it. Uh, That's kind of how it starts. And look, as Christians, we've got to understand that there is no... Spurgeon said it best. He said, God is like a lion. He doesn't need us to defend him, just to set him loose. God doesn't need our defense. God doesn't need us to, what, what house could we possibly build him? What does God need from us? Nothing. And so as we begin to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture or the authority of Scripture, the existence of God, and we begin to talk about debating it, one thing we have to realize is that God doesn't need us to do that. There's not actually even a command in Scripture that says, defend my existence. Now we do. We describe why, we explain why it is reasonable to believe in God. And even why it's more reasonable to believe in God than to believe in nothing or anything else. And we'll talk about that some. But as we come to that, something needs to happen. We need to be humble. The world, and especially the United States, needs humbler Christians. Christians who realize that we're not God's last line of defense. Or even his first. But rather that we are called to recognize the authority of God and sit under it. Just wanted to make that little statement as we go into actually defending the word of God and even the existence of God. <laughs> we move into the last part. And this is what God says. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I need you to hear that. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one that God is looking to, he doesn't say, he who is the champion and with all boldness 
and with the sword, which is my word, goes and slaughters the enemy. He doesn't say, he who keeps every word of my law and reminds everybody else when they're not. That's not the guy he looks to. He doesn't describe a David here. He doesn't describe uh, a Samson here. He doesn't describe a Paul. And we all think we need to be these guys, right? We got to be the guy who, who just jumps in, like who gets a snake on his arm and just shakes it off. That's us, right? You know? We need to be that guy who sees the, our giants and, 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 and throws stones at them with full force and anger and, and identifies and slaughters giants. That's, that's not who God looks to. God looks to the one who is humble and, and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. Trembles at his word. you get the feeling that we as Christians we hover way too far above this text when you come to hear a sermon what are you doing are you coming to hear the word of God and, and, and sit under it so that, that it might shape you? Or are you here to stand above the text and, and, and the preacher and to criticize every word and every proposition that comes? Look, the things that I'm saying, I, I, I put stake in only because they come from the word of God. I am ultimately fallible. And generally, I have no authority. <laughs> My daughter hasn't even begun to really look at me as authoritative yet, so I, I don't expect any of you to either. I'm not, I'm not coming bringing myself. It's the Word of God. In fact, the Belgic Confession says that the Word of God rightly preached, rightly divided, is God's Word. We've lost that. And I want you to have the heart of a Berean. But that, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody who comes in and says that the pastor didn't preach the sermon that I wanted him to preach. Or he said something in a way that I just didn't quite agree with. And what's happened is you've come in hovering above the text, ready to stand judge over it. You see this in academic circles. Some of you are going to be hearing this. People coming in and they're talking about historical criticism, textual criticism, all of the German criticisms. And they're good, and, and, and I guess in some regards they're very helpful, but we have to forget that we are not critics of the word. It is the critic of us. There's danger in, in hovering too far over the text. That's not what God is calling us to do here. What God is calling us to do is to, to plant our feet firmly on every word and to walk in his text, to walk through it, to sit under it, to be shaped by it. 
we don't stand as judge over the word of God. It stands as judge over us. This is the reality. This is the one who God looks to, one who trembles at his word, one who combs the pages, desperately looking for life. Desperately broken by their sin. Desperately dependent on Christ, who is sufficient. And so that does bring some questions up. That does bring, bring some significant, serious questions. If you are not a believer, if you're a skeptic, a doubter, uh, whatever, it brings to, to, to the front the question, why? Why should I, how can I trust the 66 books of the Bible? How can I trust? You are saying, Sean, and I am, that every last word, Every truth claim that Scripture makes, every truth claim that Scripture makes is true. So true that I ought to tremble at it and, and, and my life ought to be shaped by it. How, how can I be certain of that? And I could talk about archaeology and how civilizations that the Bible talked about that nobody knew about or didn't believe exist have been proven uh, to have existed. Um, I, I could talk about a number of objective academic propositions uh, that, that confirm the authority and the, 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 the truthfulness of Scripture um, and, and, and if you want to talk to me about that at some other time, you can. But I, I would rather, um, I'd rather tell you this, that the way that you come to understand and believe that Scripture is trustworthy and authoritative is to walk in it. Just to sit in it. If you are a doubter, if you're an unbeliever, go to God's Word. Read it seriously comb through the pages and as you do that Jesus stands forth from the pages he, he, he is revealed in the pages of this book in such a way that, that you come to know that the things that this book is saying are true Jesus comes forth from the pages he, he meets you where you are he befriends you he tears you down to the place where you realize that you have nothing and that you, you need everything. And then he shows himself completely sufficient to provide on the cross and in the resurrection. The word and the spirit work together in your hearts. They transform you. They bring you to a place of, of humility and of change and of hope. And Jesus vindicates his word. Jesus does it. The reason I say that is because I can give you all the academic propositional truth that I can muster. And it might not change your opinion. Chances are it won't change your opinion. Because the reality is we see what we want to see. And Christians, you need to hear that too. 
people see what they want to see. All reasoning is circular. And that's okay. Because here's the reality, and I'll just throw out the, the, the most extreme example I can, I can think of. Even if we could, without any doubt, with 100% certainty, verify that the way that we came to be what we are today was through macro, for those of you who like to distinguish between the two, macroevolution. Even if we could prove that, that does not disprove God. It's not a logical leap to say, therefore, there is no God. That's a faith leap. All of these things are leaps of faith. And this is the problem with apologetics. And again, I love apologetics, but here's the danger and the problem with it. Is that we honestly believe that we can proposition somebody into believing the truth. As if it was only their mind that was dead and not their heart and their soul. The Spirit of God must meet and change people's hearts and their souls before their minds can be changed. And guess what? He had to do it for you too. So be humble and contrite in spirit. But know that the Word of God is true. It proves itself true. Here's the last thing I want to say about this, um, because I've spent a lot, of, a lot of time saying the same thing, and I hope you see that. Um, that wasn't, wasn't by accident. Um, but th- the last thing I want to say is this. L- what this text is saying, what it's saying in verse 2, but this is the one whom I look to, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, is this, that, that God is not looking for us to affirm the authority of Scripture with our, 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 our words and, and, and with our logic and with our lips, but with our lives. And we're left at this point where, where all we can say is, shame on us. Shame on us as Christians. We will sacrifice people at the altar of inerrancy, which I affirm. We will alter people at the, or we will sacrifice people at the altar of inerrancy, And we don't even live as though the propositions of Scripture are true. Every last word in God's Word, every last word in Scripture, it's true. Every proposition that God makes in His text is true. And we do not submit to it. We may submit to it in some things. Some of us are easy at submitting to the be married to one person who is not of the same sex. We submit easily to that. Um, But we don't submit easily to giving to the Lord even when it hurts. Uh, we, We submit with great readiness to verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 when we say all scripture is God-breathed. 
but not to Romans 13, where we're called to honor the emperor, to pray for him. Here's the reality. Some of you men, you submit to meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. You get up and you read your word every day, but you do not submit to purity of heart and mind. All of us are all of us are guilty of assigning value and, and assigning levels to the authoritativeness of Scripture. And God wants us to be humble, contrite of spirit, broken by his word. Do you realize what you're doing otherwise? You're using the word of God for your own gain. You're using God instead of submitting to and being used by God. We're going to say a lot of things, a lot of things this series. And for you as believers, church members, most of those things won't be said by me, so I don't mind saying this. (laughs) Uh, But for you as church members, you're going to have two choices. You're going to either throw your hands up and say, well, I don't really agree with that. He doesn't know my life. He doesn't know our family situation right now. That's far too much for anyone to to ask or to tell us. Or you're going to come. You're going to hear God's word. You're going to kneel before it. And you're going to let God change you through his word. It's true. It's authoritative. That, that, that is the authority that we come with. Our, our, our desire is to, to teach Scripture in such a way that Jesus shines forth. And he is both sufficient and authoritative. Or we can say it the other way. He is both authoritative and sufficient. He commands, he calls, but he fully equips you. He supplies all that you need to do all that he has commanded. He is good. And we only find him in the pages of this text. We only find truth in the pages of these texts. Will you submit to it? Let's pray.